Welcome to the Rich Roll Podcast, episode 79, with T. Colin Campbell. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, everybody, welcome to the show. Well, today's guest is a biggie. I won't lie, can't lie. I am very excited to bring this conversation to you today. And I have a feeling, an inkling, uh, that it's going to bring a new crowd of people to the show, which is very exciting. Uh, So I just wanted to say a few quick words for the new listeners out there about who I am and what we do here to set the stage a bit. Uh, And for the longtime listeners out there, I hope you can forgive me a brief indulgence. But anyway, my name is Rich Roll. I'm your host. By way of background, I am a former corporate lawyer turned plant-based, ultra-distance, multi-sport athlete. I'm a wellness evangelist. I'm a public speaker, and I'm an author. I wrote a book called Finding Ultra, Rejecting Middle Age, Becoming One of the World's Fittest Men, and Discovering Myself. And that book uh, essentially chronicles my journey of self-discovery, my awakening, if you will, from a disconnected, depressed, overweight, unfit recovering alcoholic uh, to maximum fitness and to accomplishing endurance feats I never previously thought possible in a million years. But the important idea is this. uh, It's a journey to greater self-understanding and greater self-actualization that begins and ends with one simple thing, one simple idea, my adoption of a plant-based diet. And it's, an, it's also a journey that begins and ends with uh, the message put forth and popularized by the very important work of today's guest. As for the show, uh, each week I bring to you the best, most forward-thinking, paradigm-busting minds in health, fitness, wellness, diet, nutrition, spirituality, creativity, entrepreneurship, and life transformation. And the goal, the goal is very simple, to motivate and inspire you to take your life to the next level, to help you discover, unlock, and unleash your best, your healthiest, your most authentic self. So, T. Colin Campbell, where to even begin? Uh, The lion of the whole food plant-based movement. If you're already on board, then no doubt you've read his groundbreaking book, The China Study, and or his more recent follow-up book, Whole. Uh, you've seen him and his work profiled in the incredible documentary Forks Over Knives. And if these works are unfamiliar to you or you're, you're brand new to uh, this idea of plant-based nutrition, then I urge you to stop what you're doing immediately and uh, check out the books and, and the documentary Forks Over Knives straight away. And to find those things, you can check the show notes at richroll.com on the uh, episode page for this podcast, and I'll have links up there to take you where you want to go, as well as additional information about today's guest. So I can't say that Dr. Campbell invented the plant-based movement, but what I can say is that it would not be what it is today without his groundbreaking, tireless work, his life devoted to this subject. And he is quite simply put a pioneer and a legend of the modern movement, movement for sustainable wellness and ecological systems and disease prevention and disease reversal. For the uninitiated, uh, T. Colin Campbell is a Cornell and MIT-trained biochemist and current professor emeritus at Cornell University who specializes in nutrition and toxicology, specifically 
the effects of nutrition on long-term health and in particular the causation of cancer. And he's best known for his advocacy of a low-fat whole foods plant-based diet, uh, a vegan diet, so to speak. Uh, And he's the author of over 300 research papers on the subject, the two books I already mentioned, uh, Whole, which was co-authored by Howard Jacobson, who's going to be next week's guest for kind of a two-parter, and the China study, which he uh, co-authored with his son, as I as I mentioned a minute ago, obviously. Uh, and that has become one of America's best-selling books about nutrition. And Dr. Campbell made his mark on the world with the China study. Maybe you've heard of it. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you have just a passing familiarity with it. So what is it? Well, the China study was a vast, gigantic, 20-year epidemiological study, which was described by the New York Times as the Grand Prix of epidemiology. And it was conducted by the Chinese Academy of Preventive Medicine, Cornell University, and Oxford University. And what it did was it looked at mortality rates from cancer and other chronic diseases from 1973 to 1975 in 65 different counties in China. And data was correlated uh, with dietary surveys from blood work from 100 people in each of these counties. And so why China? Why these counties? Well, the research was conducted in these specific counties because they had genetically similar populations that tended over generations to live and eat in the same way and in the same place. And the study concluded that counties with a high consumption of animal-based foods were more likely to have had higher death rates from Western diseases. Well, the opposite was true for counties that ate more plant foods. So basically, the China study examined the relationship between the consumption of animal products, including dairy, and chronic illnesses such as coronary heart disease and diabetes and cancers of the breast, prostate, and bowel. And the conclusion was that people who ate a whole food plant-based diet People that avoided all animal products, and I'm talking about beef, pork, poultry, fish, eggs, cheese, and milk, and people who were reducing their intake of processed foods and refined carbohydrates, these people will escape, reduce, or reverse the development of numerous diseases. It's pretty huge, right? Uh, You might have seen uh, President Bill Clinton. He became a vocal supporter of the China study uh, in 2010. After living for years with heart disease, he undertook the diet, and within a short period, he said that he dropped 24 pounds and returned him to his college weight and was feeling great. Uh, He was profiled in my buddy uh, Sanjay Gupta's – Sanjay Gupta, who's the chief medical correspondent at CNN, did a documentary called The Last Heart Attack uh, a couple years ago. I think it was 2011 in which he said that the China study had changed the way that people all over the world are eating, including uh, the good Dr. Gupta himself. So this is powerful stuff. This is awesome stuff. It's pretty huge. Uh, But I would be remiss if I did not uh, point out that the China study is not without its controversy either. Uh, In the wake of the massive success of of the book, The China Study, and Forks Over Knives and and sort of ancillary works that that have been published, Um, As a result of these works, critics have come out to challenge the findings and they've tried to poke holes in the research. And suddenly, uh, you know, I've noticed that it has become kind of this rather vogue thing to offhandedly say like, well, didn't you hear the China study was was debunked? Didn't you hear about that? 
And uh, this is one of the things that, that I had the good fortune to sit down with Dr. Campbell and talk through and get his perspective on what's going on with that. You know, I mean, has it really been debunked? And what is this really all about? I mean, who is threatened by and who stands to gain from attempting to undermine the integrity of Dr. Campbell's game-changing research? So, yeah, we get into all of that and more and Dr. Campbell's background and his journey to where he is now. And it's fascinating. And over the last few years, I've had the good fortune to meet him on several occasions, but it wasn't until we spent a week together on the Holistic Holiday at Sea Cruise uh, last month that I had the uh, opportunity to really sit down with him and, and really get to know him. And Dr. Campbell isn't, isn't one to often sit for such long-winded interviews, so it really was uh, a great honor and a privilege to grab this moment with him. And I have to say that I'm very proud of this interview, and my hope is that it will inspire and motivate you to think about your health and your diet and your lifestyle in new and different ways, profound ways that could have a gigantic impact on your future well-being. So a final note before we get into it, this is uh, intended to be part one of a two-part series. Next week, I'm going to be bringing you Dr. Campbell's uh, co-writer on his book, Whole, uh, a guy called Howard Jacobson. And he's a great guy. He has a very amazing uh, personal story and journey of his own. And he sits down with me to share that and also to kind of fill in the gaps on the important work of Dr. Campbell. So if you enjoy uh, today's show, definitely tune in uh, next week for Howard Jacobson. I think you'll enjoy that as well. So in any event, uh, dig in, put the earbuds in, and uh, let's spin the wheel and see where this leads us. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And 
With that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. I would like to uh, open it up if you could. for the listeners who might be uninitiated or unfamiliar with your work, if you could simply uh, synopsize the idea behind the China study and what the book is all about. Well, the China study, of course, is a book. Uh, It's 18 chapters, uh, but there's only one chapter that's actually devoted specifically to the China project itself. Mm-hmm. I have to point that out because the whole book is not just about the work in China. Right, and that's something I want to explore with you, for sure. Yeah, it's, it's the rest of the book, the, the work that I was doing at least, uh, if I can I say, 25, 30 years before I got involved in China study that really played a major role in my thinking. The China study, in a sense, was getting to a place in time that I wanted to really have a, an opportunity to examine a population to see if, in fact, the information we were getting there was consistent with what I already had been doing. Mm-hmm. So and so to, to take it a step back, um, I have this sort of running joke that in order to be a, a qualified specialist in, in the plant-based nutrition world, you must have been raised on a farm. <laughs> because it's you, <laughs> Dr. Esselstyn, Dr. Clapper, I mean, I'm feeling very unqualified because I, did not, I was not raised on a farm, nor do I have a PhD or an MD. But, but you, you, know, you were raised on a, on a dairy farm, and, and this was very uh, instrumental in kind of informing your early views about nutrition and health. Yeah, it really was. I mean, I was outdoors all the time, for the most part, even sleeping outdoors at times. And I mean, I really was uh, 
in the dirt, you know, plowing fields, harrowing fields, uh, raking hay, uh, milking cows. I, I milked my first cow when I was five years old. That was a thing to do. And, and so um, I, I was everything about the outdoors. Uh, mm-hmm. It was my life. And I liked the outdoors. And I felt totally at home in the outdoors. I, I used to say when I was young that when I got big, I would not take a job inside. <laughs> the mm-hmm. opposite has happened. So I've really been uh, living, if you will, in nature. Mm-hmm. Always had a great deal of respect for nature. Mm-hmm. And and so where did it uh, begin for you in terms of being interested in in health and biochemistry and nutrition? That was kind of an accident in a sense. Not totally. Um, I went uh, to Penn State for my undergraduate work. And in that first year, as was customary in universities, we were given, freshmen were given tests to, for aptitude, you know, future aptitudes. And I took this test, and my dad wanted me to be a lawyer. Uh-huh. My dad only had two years of education. So I come from a family that, for the most part, you know, education was a big thing. And in any case, he wanted me to be a lawyer, so I took the test, and there were about six or seven or eight different you know, paths I could have followed. Uh, law was in the middle, so I wasn't mm-hmm. too happy with that. I wanted to, but uh, there were two. Your dad things. wasn't happy either, probably. No, so there, <laughs> there were two things that I, I suppose that I ranked at the top end. One was to be a farmer. I said, "Whoop de doo, I know how to farm." <laughs> so, mm-hmm. uh, the other was to be in medicine, and that surprised me. I never thought about it, but it kind of stuck in my mind. I started thinking about it, and. I didn't particularly want to go into medicine because uh, we lived with uh, a doctor who, you know, was on call 24-7. He had an old Model T Ford. He came to the homes. You know, there wasn't such things as being in an office, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. It was in the countryside. And I didn't particularly want to do that for that reason. I didn't want to be on call all the time. Very naively, I have to tell mm-hmm. you. Most of my life was very naive mm-hmm. from the very beginning. So, but nonetheless, I took the idea to my work in, at Penn State. To say, I'll be I'll be a veterinarian. I said that combined medicine with mm-hmm. my agriculture background. So I ended up in veterinary school uh, a little bit early, I, just after three years of undergraduate school. But then, it, just out of the clear blue, I got a wire a telegram one day from a fairly famous professor at Cornell, who had been talking to my advisor at Penn State about possible students, and so he offered me a full scholarship to. Wow. Drop out of med, drop out of veterinary school, come to Cornell, and I thought, boy, that's that's a pretty good deal. Yeah, that's uh, that's a, you must have been quite the student. Uh, how did you make well, such whatever. an impression? Well, whatever. I don't know what it was. He obviously, my advisor, Penn State, passed on a good word about me. And uh, the thing about it too was, what, why I say it's kind of an accident happening in time because uh, they were going to pay me to go to school. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't imagine that. Or you know, my dad, he didn't have any more money to hardly see me through. So um, I thought that was a pretty good deal, too. Right. So I went to, went to uh, Cornell thinking that somehow I was going to get involved in maybe in medical research because it was in the area of nutritional biochemistry and pathology. Mm-hmm. And I, I went there, and I didn't even know, to be honest about it, until after I was there about six, eight months, that I was actually working for a Ph.D. Mm-hmm. I never heard of a Ph.D. <laughs> That's how naive I was. So I... It was just kind of something pulling me in this way and that way and as I went forward. And um, so I finished up that work in a year doing actually a master's because I was mm-hmm. being pressured to get to. You uh, got your master's in one year. 
I did it in one year because I was being pressured by my draft board. Mm. Uh, I was classified 1A, and you know I, I had gotten a deferment four times, mm-hmm. and they said, this is the last time, you've got to go. Mm-hmm. So I had to quit that. Fortunately, I finished up my degree. And when I was, uh, I went home, went to the draft board, and, and uh, I didn't particularly want to go in the Army just being a foot soldier. So I heard about the opportunity, I lived outside of Washington, heard about the opportunity of uh, inquiring about being an officer. So I went and took the test, and there were some rare occasions when you could do that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I passed that. I was assigned to be a second lieutenant, scheduled to report to um, a hospital in Colorado. It was at the time. This is prior to the, to the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. The Vietnam War at that time was just starting. Mm-hmm. And so I was ready to go, but then another professor at Cornell uh, wrote me in the meanwhile and offered me again a, a full scholarship to come and do my PhD. Mm. I didn't know this professor, and he said, come on back. He said, you should come back. So I took it to the guy who gave me my commission that I was supposed to report to, and he said, uh, well, okay, go back. You know, there's no great pressures right now. We'll keep in touch. Mm-hmm. If you don't hear, if, if, we, if you let us know when you finish your, finish your PhD, you gotta serve your time, uh, if you don't, we'll contact you. So I figured, well, I'll go do my PhD, come back and, and serve. But that, by that time, the Vietnam War is getting a little bit hotter. Right. And so I didn't hear from them. And I was sort of But as long as you're there. a student and you're getting your PhD, you're in the clear, right? Well, so. not until I was 38. That oh, was I the see. rule of the day. You know, I, I, was, I had to take up that officer appointment until I was 38 which would have been about 1970 or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so I was kind of waiting to hear from them. Never heard from them. And I learned later that there was a big fire in St. Louis. They burned up 30,000 records, fast oh days records. Mine was one of those records that got burned up. Wow. So I became a non-person as far as the Army was concerned. Wow. Um, so you have it, these little amazing occurrences that are happening, a phone call here, a yeah, telegram uh, here, a fire over here that are all kind of directing you, you know, yeah, without your right, conscious right. awareness. But I was enjoying science in the meanwhile. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you're getting it. your PhD in biochemistry. I got a PhD at that time in nutrition with biochemistry, right? Mm-hmm. Nutritional biochemistry. And was and, there a, any specificity to that or what was your focus? Well, it was an animal nutrition, mm-hmm. so it was focused largely on trying to improve the lot of, of animals as far as the nutrition was concerned. And uh, I got offered a couple of positions as a professor even before I finished my PhD uh, to go to an animal science department, one back at Penn State to be a professor of dairy science and so forth. And so I thought something, but I didn't accept it. I didn't want to do that. By that time, I'd gotten interested in some other things and the more fundamental things. Mm-hmm. So I finally finished up and and then did some work in a laboratory where I met my wife. Mm-hmm. A testing laboratory near Washington D.C., where near where I lived. And uh, then uh, was, what, you want to hear all this story? I, I don't know. Well, I mean, uh, I'm interested in understanding kind of. How did how your work? how your perspective on nutrition, dairy, meat, etc., uh, evolved over time from your perspective when you were a student at Cornell to what you began to discover when you undertook uh, what you describe in the China study. Yeah, it was time went forward. I mean, I, it, it, when I was at 
at, in this position in this laboratory doing work right after my PhD. I was there for a short while. Uh, nice experience, but then I got offered to, an opportunity to come to MIT mm-hmm. who, by a guy who had been at the FDA to organize a new department there in toxicology. So without going into all those details, I got sort of some training in toxicology too, toxicological biochemistry essentially. And after that, it was an offer to go take a faculty position at Virginia Tech and a few other places. So I went to Virginia Tech there. Gotten, I, I started my research career applying for funding to do research. And one, I had two, uh, two tracks, which is a little bit unusual for the day. I wanted to get, do some basic science stuff. And the other one was to work in the, in the international setting, mm-hmm. uh, which is very, very applied. The second one, this international experience, was an opportunity to go to the Philippines and help organize a nationwide program of feeding malnourished children. Mm-hmm. Always had that kind of, I, I had an interest in kind of serving society, if you will, particularly on an international level. I don't know where that came from, but mm-hmm. that's what my interest was. Uh, in the laboratory, I was working in sort of very basic biochemical kinds of things. Well, the two happened just happened to join without my planning, because the Philippines had an interest in liver cancer and um, you know, I mean, laboratories of liver cancer. Go to the Philippines. I see this observation in the Philippines, where children getting liver cancer had a much higher um, risk of getting the cancer. In fact, if they were from families who the few families who were consuming the, the best diets high in protein. Mm-hmm. And then there was another report. It's, so the rest is history. But right. So this, this fact um, sort of lodged in your brain and, and kind of compelled you to decide to look into this further or to design a study to understand what exactly was going on. Right. Well, yeah. And I, as, as my career passed, I, I really got quite active in my science and at fairly senior levels, actually early on at the national level, being on expert panels and things like that, policy making. And I kept seeing things all the time that I found very troubling. And I would ask myself, why is this bothering me and not bothering others? Uh, and when I tried to do some, if you will, introspection, you know, what, why do I think the way I think? I often came back to the farm. You know, I, I, I would come back, this doesn't sound natural to me, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the first questions I know, I took a course at Cornell when I first went there about uh, in, in nutritional biochemistry. And one of the major illustrations was, you know, this nutrient does that, another nutrient does something else. And mm-hmm. there was a big project at Cornell at the time involving four nutrients as it impacted you know, a disease in chickens and calves of all things. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember each one of those four things did something specific. And when, but when you kind of mix those nutrients together, you know, then something different happened. Right. So I asked my professor, I remember at the time, it was just a classroom. I was just asking a simple question. But as I look back, it stuck in my brain because I said to him, well, why don't we study that this way? He said, we can't. It's not possible. Right. In other words, the idea of of taking a more macro approach and a a more global perspective as opposed to this very reductionist. Exactly. So that was sort of lesson number one in a sense Mm -hmm. as far as the science is concerned that things are far more complicated than just thinking about going from A to B to go to C and so mm-hmm. forth. So our biochemical research when I got involved in that, and I was lucky to get a, quite substantial amounts of funding from the very beginning, and it continued from NIH. From NIH, right. Yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, so 
we had a big research program, actually. I had a lot of graduate students, uh, and I had the freedom to be able to ask questions, design experiments, see what it might look like. And any time you learn something new, you always have more questions. Right. So that's, that was the way it went. It just kind of drifted in a certain direction. But the more I just found myself just asking questions that were a little bit offbeat, uh, I guess, because I was just curious. I mm -hmm. liked the science. And pretty soon, I just things started to fall together, and I realized there was a much bigger story here than just working on one single thing at a time. Mm -hmm. But to bring it back to the specifics of the China study, could you just describe um, the essence of what that was? Yeah, by the time the China study opportunity came along, and this was in the early 1980s, um, I got a, uh, an opportunity to, well, it was a letter sent to Cornell by the first senior scientist from China to come to the United States, and this particular gentleman, Dr. Chen Shu, uh, he, he had come from a famous family in China, actually. Uh, in any case, he was one of the first to come to this country. He was looking for a place to land, spend some time, his government had given him mm -hmm. this opportunity. And he was sent it to Cornell a, a little bit, and some others turned it down, I don't know why, but I grabbed onto him right away, and mm -hmm. so he came and worked with me. And it was probably one of the best decisions I ever made, because it turned out he really was from a well-connected family in China, for starters, and high up in the government, in a sense, as far as science is concerned. And so at that time, the Chinese government had done this nationwide survey of how much cancer existed across a total of uh, something like 2,400 counties. Mm -hmm. It was a massive undertaking. And what they were able to show was that cancer was very common in some counties and not in others. So we just, it was common sense just to ask, well, what about, uh, you know, what's, what's causing this unusual concentration of cancer in certain places for about a dozen different cancers? So I just, we got together and I just said, why don't we try to get an application to do some funding there? His government was offering, offering a lot of support in kind. Mm -hmm. We needed capital, so I went back to NIH again to, to see if I could get that funding, and we did. And we had the first project between the United States and China, the first mm -hmm. research project at that time so we went there and surveyed uh, a large population and that was an opportunity for me to see if in fact the kind of information we might learn from that, from that population was consistent with these rather aberrant questions that I was getting in the laboratory mm -hmm. and that had to do and with and those questions were those questions were basically that animal protein in particular um, was promoting cancer mm -hmm. because that's what we learned in the laboratory mm -hmm. and uh, so it we did that and measured just a huge amount of information. It was a massive undertaking. It I mean, was how a many people did it take to sort of collect the data from this gigantic population of individuals? Well, it wasn't so big in terms of numbers of people. It was 6,500 uh -huh. adults plus their families, so we estimated around 10, 11,000 people, which in those days, what it was big, but it wasn't that big, really. What made it big was the number of variables that we were looking at. And I wanted to be able to analyze for just anything and everything because mm -hmm. I really was getting interested in this idea that there's more to this story as we generally do in science than just one thing at a time. So the ideas that you're discussing in your more recent book, Whole, these are already formulated and taking place in the China study because I think it would have been very easy for you 
to simply say, we're going to look at animal protein and liver cancer, and that's all we're looking at, and we don't need to look at anything else. And nobody would have batted an eye. That is reductionist science 101. That's the way we do it. And, And you could have gone on your way with that and dismissed with this idea of entertaining the possibility that an innumerable number of other variables could be contributing or having causative or correlative effects with the results that you were seeing. Yeah, actually, we proposed for that, uh, that grant application, by the way, exactly something like that. We wanted to look at the relationship between the mineral selenium and its relationship to a heart disease in children. Mm-hmm. That's why, in part, I got the grant, because it was focused. Uh, at the same time, we were kind of fortunate in a way because there were parties interested in the United States in getting involved in China and vice versa. So for some political support, you know, I was able to get it that way, but it was focused on one thing. Mm-hmm. And so describe what you began to learn when you assayed this population with across all these variables. Well, we ended up with collecting 367 items of information, as I, I would say, things measured in the blood, the urine, the food, uh, questions being asked. And so we, we had a big collection of a lot of variables, if you will. We worked on each one to make sure they're reliable. We had ways of doing that. And then um, uh, they were all correlated with each other, so we ended up with about 100,000 correlations, mm-hmm. um, about 9,000 of which were statistically significant. Um, to be expected. That's just a right. random chance of that happening. But in any case, uh, we wanted to take those significant correlations and some others that might approach significance to see if there were patterns. I should say, incidentally, it was directed by me at Cornell University, but I was able to access some fantastic colleagues at the University of Oxford. Mm-hmm. Uh, Richard Pito, Sir Richard Pito now, Sir Richard Dahl, some very eminent epidemiologists and and, and uh, others in China, some of the senior scientists there, and plus another 24 right. laboratories around the world. So and, and, a, and so what were some of the most significant, statistically significant correlations that you began to uncover? Well, it really, coming back to the question concerning animal protein, I mean, that had been a lifelong or career-long question because we were able to, in the prior studies, we were able to show that we could turn on and turn off cancer just simply by feeding, of all things, the protein of cow's milk, which brought me back to the dairy farm in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was very provocative, to say the least. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I think it's, you know, there might be a perspective out there that you were out to, you know, sort of prove, to establish an objective that you already believed in. But you're coming from this no. dairy farm background, and it had been your whole, you know, the, the conviction of your entire upbringing that, you know, milk does a body good, that this right. is the perfect food, right? So where did you start to begin to see kind of cracks in the, in the firmament of that concept? Well, it was the initial observation I think we did. With the, 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 uh, there were some Indian researchers who had done some laboratory animal studies that showed that at the time that I was in the Philippines. And, but they didn't believe what they got. Uh, it was published in an obscure journal, but I kind of believed it because it was consistent with what I was seeing with the children. Um, and so as we went into that research, we looked at it in great depth. And I had become convinced you know, by that time, we, we did it so many different ways mm-hmm. that animal protein actually increases cancer risk, period. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I was really interested to know in the China study whether there was any evidence for that. 
uh, and my my bias was to find the opposite. Right. Really was. I mean, if I if I had a prejudice, in the I think that's a, and that's a very important point. You know, I think that that you weren't out to you know sort of be on this crusade uh, to uh, you know with this foregone conclusion that you already had in your mind. You went out and you surveyed a gigantic population of people across innumerable variables and remained open-minded and uh, to take what you just said, hopeful that maybe it might prove the opposite. That's right. Absolutely. I, I, uh, I was always kind of swimming upstream against my own sort of prior prejudices. Mm -hmm. But finally, the evidence was overwhelming. Uh, with respect to, for starters, with the effect of animal protein on encouraging the development of, of cancers, if you will. But then there were other questions that arose, too, at the same time. And always having this doubt, you know, about the significance of this, we would ask, I would want to ask broader questions. What if we eat animal protein-containing foods? What about all the other nutrients that come along with it? Mm -hmm. What's happening there? Do they cancel each other? So we started investigating other nutrients, other cancers, other diseases. And the more that I looked, the more consistent became the data. Mm -hmm. Everything seemed to, all the nutrients in animal-based foods as opposed to all the nutrients in plant-based foods, they seemed to be doing opposite things. And, and their activities were sort of mutually supportive you know, at the biochemical and physiological level. Mm -hmm. So the story became, for me, even ever more impressive. Was, uh, but it was always coming from a position, in my case, in a sense, of almost trying to disprove, right? You know what I had observed, and this is this is a, a, a landmark discovery, right? This is this had never been sort of established or presumed or even conjured by anyone prior to you. It's an interesting question. I'll comment on it in just a minute, but yes, when we were doing all the research in the laboratory, and because of my skepticism about a lot of things, what we ended up discovering were a lot of fundamental ideas that were against the rules. Mm -hmm. against what I was teaching and against what was in the books. Such as? Well, for example, turning cancer on and off by nutritional means. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was a big deal. Uh, and that, it, it turned out we didn't do it just with protein and liver cancer. We also did it with dietary fat and pancreatic cancer and things like this. So that, that phenomenon of thinking about the causation of cancer and later other diseases as a result of simply modifying you know, nutrient intake and, mm -hmm. and, and the idea of actually reversing disease. Right, it's the turning we off We were reversing part. disease. Yeah. And, and cancer, I thought, this is incredible. And so we are learning other things too, like um, that the relationship between nutrition and genes. A lot of people think and a lot of people still think that somehow genes predetermine whether or not we're going to get a certain kind of disease. Mm -hmm. And what we are showing, no, it's not the case. We can have the genes to cause it, to start the initiation of events, but that is, we can control it by nutritional means. Big thing. Another one, uh, sort of principle, like if you will, an, an A, like protein, it causes cancer, let's say for starters. One of the things that I was really being pushed to do to prove my point was to find what the mechanism was. You know, which enzyme, which this, which mm -hmm. that. And so we started looking for the mechanisms. And I had a series of PhD students spending four or five years, each of them looking at a mechanism. And it turned out there is no such thing. So that was another myth that I was all of a sudden running across too. And so a lot of the things that we, we learned really were, I think, the result of my skepticism. Mm -hmm. And it's quite yeah. astounding. I mean, I think people can inherently wrap their brain around the idea of prevention, 
like doing certain things, uh, whether through diet or, you know, exercise or what have you to prevent certain things from happening. But when you start talking about reversal once onset has begun, that starts to get into radical territory. <laughs> really radical territory. Because yeah. the whole medical profession uh-huh. is, in a sense, is sort of uh, supported by the idea that somehow you're going to be able to, if you have a disease or the, about to start or it's already mm-hmm. there, you know, you're going to cure it. Mm-hmm. That, that's sort of the premise. And that's the, that's the territory of the practice of medicine. Right. What we were saying, what I thought we were saying, I, I'm very excited about this idea that this formula, this nutritional formula for preventing the production of future disease also works to treat existing disease. Mm-hmm. That's the future of this field. Just the whole idea you could take this with people with disease or a very high risk of disease and treat them. Right. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation. A groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. So you're drawing these conclusions, these statistically significant correlations, and there's a decision at some point that this should not just reside in a medical journal, but that this should be shared more broadly through a book, right? So where does the idea of a book come in and how does that all come about? Well, for the, from about the late 1970s until let's say 1990, I was getting into more and more trouble, if you will, by raising mm-hmm. these provocative questions, getting results to show <laughs> things that were rather different. Right. And I, I was a subject of pretty intense uh, <laughs> scrutiny, <laughs> to say the least from my colleagues. Uh-huh. 
but I was still succeeding, getting all the money I wanted. Mm-hmm. I had senior positions in my society and the government. And so the, I, yeah, the NIH so, is smiling down on you throughout yeah, this I whole time. Things were going great, and and but, but finally, you know, it became apparent that I was supporting an idea that I never expected I would arrive at in the early 1990s. When we got the results from the China study, it supported what we had been doing in the laboratory. New York Times got a hold of it. Jane Brody, one of the leading people writing at that time for the Times, a graduate of Cornell too, she Mm -hmm. came up to interview me. She wrote the article. Uh, It came out in the New York Times as the the lead article in the science section. And the headline in it said something like, uh, this is the Grand Prix of all studies. It establishes this, that, or something else. Very provocative. Mm. And it made me nervous. Because by this time, you know, yeah. I'm, in the, I'm in the science establishment, right? right? You don't go out and say these crazy things. And so here are the times I put it in headline. I had to say to myself. You're losing control of this story. Yeah, it's, now it's getting out there. And, you know, I, don't, I didn't mind it really getting out there, sharing it with the public to some extent. But this was really provocative. New York Times. And I saw that and I picked up the phone and I called Jane. I said, Jane, why did you put that title up there like that? I said, this is pretty outrageous. And she said, I didn't do it. She said, the editors did mm. it. I said, oh, Okay, so it was out there by that time. So I came home and asked my wife. I, I remember this very well. She does too. I said, "Are you willing to live in a double wide?" Hmm. Because I figured, you know, even <laughs> I. I said I had the senior uh-huh. position at Cornell, the, the, the topmost topmost position. Actually, I had an endowed chair. I was, and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew that I was about to take a big hit, uh, one way or another. And she said, "Of course." And right. it was, it was, I don't you know why you asked it. I just wanted to confirm it with her. You could start stockpiling uh, guns and yeah. bunker, hunker down. I, I was driven <laughs> as she was. I mean, as I, I go back, and my background is very simple. We were raised on a farm. My wife, similarly, was that way. No education, her fa- you know, upper level education for her family or for mine. And I only could rely on one thing, and that was the truth. And so I get that from my, from my father who was, uh, had a great reputation as a farmer in the area, great integrity. He said, when you go out, don't always, he says, always tell the truth. It was, it was that simple. Mm-hmm. It was a hard-nosed thing. And I just thought, you know, there's no other way. So I obviously put my toe in the water and kept on going. Mm-hmm. And I can't turn back because then it only becomes bigger and bigger. The China study itself was a book. I was complaining to my wife a little bit about this. Is the, the, the arrows coming my way were becoming more and more intense mm-hmm. uh, and um, so finally I, she said well why don't you write a book so I said okay well we will but and I kept putting it off and then she was getting a little more annoyed with time and mm-hmm. I got a couple of offers from book publishers in the early 90s that if I'd write a book and that came from the New York Times article if I'd write a book in one case the guy offered me a million dollars to write a book and um, he wanted to call it the China Diet. And I didn't want to do that because I thought that was corrupting the message. And so he went back and, and back to New York and uh, actually wrote the first chapter and wrote the outline and everything came back. He says, you know, I guarantee you a million dollars if you write this book. I didn't want to do it. I didn't want mm. to do it for money. That was not the purpose. And so that just sort of sat there for a while and from 19, I think 92 or three or so until 2002. When I finally sat down and insisted to my wife, you better write that book, she said. You know, it's for the women and the children of the world for no other reason and tell my story. So I wrote it, started writing a book with my youngest son, who's now a physician, mm-hmm. 
uh, without understanding exactly where this thing was going to go. Uh, and all I wanted to do was just see if I couldn't summarize for myself the story that made sense. Right. That was all it was. And we did say in the later, later part of the book that um, it, you don't have to believe all this science. I said to the reader, just try it. Mm-hmm. And, that's, and that's kind of an amazing thing to pass up, I mean, a million dollars so that you could write a book the way that you wanted to write it and tell the story appropriately without inflammation or trying 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 to sort of um, frame the narrative in the context of a diet that people could purchase. Right. Yeah, it was. And then actually after we did the China study, we had the manuscript ready to go. We mm-hmm. were shopping it around. We, I had engaged uh, three other agents prior to that. Finally landed on one that was a good agent. I thought that's the way to go. I didn't know anything about the publishing business. But in any case, this guy had been senior vice president at Random House. Mm-hmm. So he wanted to represent us. And he took us, he shopped around to 11 different publishers or manuscript. And a couple of them offered advances. And mm-hmm. I didn't want the advances because uh, the story that they all wanted, they were all consistent on a couple of points. They looked at it and they said, you know, you, you, we don't need all these references. And the public doesn't want to have all these references, mm-hmm. number one. They wanted to dumb it down to the to a ten year old. That right. was get it. rid of the science, Colin. Yeah, get rid of this stuff. And then they uh, also wanted me to put, you know, sixty to seventy percent of the book with recipes. I said, I don't even know where the pots and pans are in the kitchen, little recipes. <laughs> so, you know, I'm, that's not that's not what I want to do. Uh-huh. And it's not about the money. You know, so I remember a couple of occasions, I won't go into details here, where they were really insisting I was doing the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. And finally, we had the last meeting with the senior vice president at the company where this agent had come from. And he had to straighten my tie up and everything else and t- tell me how to talk. And, you know, he <laughs> thought, this, this, is, this is a winner, uh-huh. you know, that we're going to go in and see, have this opportunity to meet a senior person at Random House. We got in there, and she started saying things. I started talking about, you know, the grander scheme of things and how things work together. No, 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 that's not possible. This is, she, they had published the Okinawa diet, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Oh, she said, are you saying that you, you got this the same message for all these different diseases? I said, yes. That's not possible. She got really quite angry. And so I was arguing with it. My agent in turn got annoyed. He thought he was going to have a big one. He got up mm-hmm. and left us. Right, because he, I had blown the, I had blown the lid. No big advance from no from big Random advance ha- from Random House. They both said, you know, you're, you okay, do the book. You're not going to sell more than three to five thousand copies at the most. Mm-hmm. You know, they might just put it in libraries, it's standard stuff. So we walked away from eleven publishers. Wow, just because of what they wanted to do and, and the yeah, so they weren't they weren't saying no. They just wanted to they wanted to direct revolve. what I was going to yeah, do exactly. So I didn't want to do it. So finally went to a small publisher who allowed us to do what we wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Even he said, you're not going to sell more than five or 10,000. He said, finally, he said, if you can sell 15,000, I think it was 15 to 18,000, he said, I'll be happy. I'll cover my costs. Mm-hmm. He said, but that's, he was just hoping that we could sell that. Well, now it's well over a million, so made us cover it. That's amazing. <laughs> it is. It's exceeded a million. Yeah. It's, oh, yeah. Wow. That's well over a million. That is incredible. But, 25 but, languages, foreign languages. <clears throat> wow. So it's getting around. But it didn't start out that way. Uh, just in, no. in sitting down with Howard, he told this amazing story. Well, of, Howard that Howard wasn't involved in the China study. No, I know, but, but like, he was sort of recounting the early days of, you know, when the China study initially came out and how he was the third person to oh, read yeah, the yeah, book. Yeah, and yeah. it was seven weeks after it had come out. And, and 
yeah, I just presumed that, you know, when it when it came out, it came out big and strong and fast. And that was not the case. Like it took a while before anybody was paying attention. And your little publisher actually was sort of right in the in the first few <laughs> in the first few weeks or these early days after publication. Yeah, I, I saw on Amazon where these reviews are written. You know, obviously I'm looking at that, it's all new to me, you know. <laughs> yeah. And this brilliant review came out, you know, uh-huh. supporting the study. And I saw this guy's name, you know, Howard Jacobson, and mm-hmm. I thought, oh, I think I know him. You know, because prior to that, Howard had met at a, another someone else, and I... And I, so I thought it was true, and of course it turned out Well, you have a fair trap memory, because Howard claims that he stood in line amongst seven other people to meet you at the Veg Source event and couldn't Maybe imagine so. how he, you could possibly remember meeting him. But that's Well, I, I think, if I'm not mistaken, I met him through another person by the name of John Allen Molinar. Oh, maybe that's the case, yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. in, in any case, we had a short meeting, obviously, mm-hmm. but I, I, it, clearly it became the person that I thought it was. Mm-hmm. And so that review stayed on the Amazon site throughout just about the entire history of the of the ten years. Right. If you if you're there. one of the early reviewers, um, good or bad, those reviews tend to stay at the top. That's uh, right. You know, once the once it really starts to cascade. Unfortunately, that was a good review. Yeah, it's good. You're, you're lucky. <laughs> Very well written. <laughs> yeah. Very positive. But what? Where was the moment where? it kind of tipped the scales in terms of uh, getting out into the public. I mean, was there one thing that occurred that kind of changed, changed yes, things um, in terms of getting the book out there? There were certain individuals. Gary Player, the mm-hmm. pro golfer, um, called me up right after it was it came out, and he said, uh, I'm Gary Player. Um, <laughs> I couldn't believe that I was talking <laughs> to Gary Player. <laughs> But he said that um, he was going to be on the Golf Channel with a big audience and mm-hmm. wanted to know if he could uh, talk about it. I said, you know, help yourself. It's great. It's fantastic. He told me what he's going to do. He said, I'm going to get down my knees and, and, and just talk about this book. I mean, he was really impressed with it, I guess. And mm-hmm. So, in fact, we watched to see when this happened. I was actually, by this time, with Howie, Dr. Jacobson. Uh, and so we watched how he, uh, we watched Gary Player get down and you know with a praying position and it says, America, everyone in this country should read this book or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a that was a good hit. Yeah, that's and pretty good. That was pretty good. And then um, Bill Clinton. No publicist is going to get you that. No, and, and then Bill <laughs> Bill Clinton came. Along yeah, how does too, the Bill how does Bill Clinton come into the equation? Because this is fascinating. Well, this is about two let's see three years after the book was out, mm-hmm. and. Uh, I was on the board with a close friend of Bill Clinton's, the former governor of uh, North Carolina, uh, Jim Hunt. The board of what? No, of a company that my son and I had founded. Oh, okay. And so Jim Hunt was on there, the chief, actually we had some pretty key figures on there, but uh, Jim Hunt, the former governor of North Carolina was there. He in turn was a close friend of Clinton. So Jim came and asked me if I signed a couple copies for Clinton. So I did, I got a uh, handwritten note back from President Clinton, mm-hmm. thanking me for the book, and he, but he, never, he didn't follow up for a couple of years, and it wasn't until the time of his daughter's wedding right. that he had another problem with his heart, and she in turn, the story goes, that she in turn wanted him to do the book, and so he got pretty enthused about it, and I got a call from uh, uh, one of his uh, close associates who was at the wedding, and said that Clinton had come to the wedding, and was carrying a book with him. That's what I was told. And wow. I heard this before the CNN thing came along. Uh-huh. But he had the book with him. He was showing it to everybody. And 
including Barbara Streisand, who wanted to know, you know, what is that book you keep on talking about? Mm-hmm. This is, I'm, I'm, and this is second information before the CNN thing. Mm-hmm. And so he told her, and her husband allegedly said, second information again, said to her, you know, you, I got that book for you two years ago, and you never read it. <laughs> so <laughs> these kind of stories, I was getting right. these stories, and finally then he's on CNN. Mm-hmm. And, and this is the, the Wolf Blitzer interview, Wolf Blitzer, right? Prior, yeah. there was the the last heart attack show with Sanjay Gupta, but it was I remember that Wolf Blitzer interview where he talked about um, wanting to be healthy for his daughter's wedding. Yeah, it was, and he got big, resu- really good results, and mm-hmm. became a real enthusiast for this idea. Um, yeah, it's true. That's amazing. And then, um, where in the timeline does Forks Over Knives come into the equation? Um, at about that same time, and let's say I think about uh, 2009, possibly. This is uh, four years after the book had been published. A, a young fellow in uh, California had attended one of my lectures. Uh, this fellow, having some resources, decided that he really loved it and so forth and so on, and I recommended that he also talk to my friend Esselton. Mm-hmm. Because in the book, we, I knew Esselton. He hadn't at that time really had too much attention I, so we went and interviewed him for partly for the book as you know mm-hmm. and, and others and so um, I recommended he go hear him too he did and the next thing uh, he wants to get together and put a film out and he said he wanted to get the best possible director and, and producer and he introduced me to them and wanted to get me to confirm the possibility of making a film mm-hmm. you know based on starting out at least for the China study that's where it started. And I, I, so I wasn't involved in any of that planning, certainly not in the resources or the return or anything like that. I didn't, I mean, I haven't gotten any financial return out of it. Right. So I have no equity position in any of that stuff. But he, he followed us, uh, the crew followed us to China, to Washington, to all over the place, back to my farm, the mm-hmm. farm we had when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they went ahead and did the film and of course that film was turned out to be pretty fabulous quite amazing yeah and in, in, talking about it with Howard um, I don't think anybody could have predicted what a phenomenon it has become I think it was the maybe it still is I'm not sure but for a very long time it was the number one you know watched documentary on Netflix or the number all. one selling documentary on Amazon or I don't know exactly what the statistics are but phenomenal impact that that movie has had it has. And what's interesting about it is it's not just about plant-based nutrition, the findings of the China study, Dr. Esselstyn's remarkable work with reversing heart disease through plant-based nutrition. I mean, when you see these angiograms, the before and after, it's sure. just it's so compelling. Um, but it's also about this amazing friendship that you have had for many years with Dr. Esselstyn. And it sort of begs the question of, you know, sitting where you're sitting now, um, you know, having devoted both yourself and Dr. Esselstyn, having devoted the better part of your lives to this this quest and and uh, this message that you're putting out, for so many years, having it fall on deaf ears or being criticized or being maligned, to now having you know sort of the the sort of um, audience or reception. Um, that maybe you thought initially you might get right out of the gate. How does that feel? I mean, is that, does that give you a sense of 
vindication or maybe that's a little bit of a negative word, but it's been a long road. I mean, you've been, you and Essie have been at this for a very long time and it's taken an extremely, an extremely long time for the momentum to pick up to the point where people are now receptive and hearing it and it's become this thing. It's become this movement. Yeah, if I can, I mean, obviously I'm very gratified, you know, that mm-hmm. this is happening. Uh, and as time passes, it becomes deeper and deeper in meaning it for me. Uh, and it relates more to, more, more than just, you know, working with the biochemistry, you know, inside of cancer cells, if you will. Uh, and obviously it, it's uh, led to, you know, the possibility of writing another book, as mm-hmm. you know, and uh, at that time, when I start, first started to write the second book that eventually got called Whole, I had in mind the first title was using the word control. Because for me, I had had a lot of experiences, a lot of kickback you know, from institutions and other people uh, about this crazy path I was on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was very discouraging at times, but I, I, couldn't, I couldn't turn around. And, I, and so I spent three weeks at, uh, at a resort and not a resort but a beach house down the one before we started right hole it's called it control and I started out just documenting all of these these ridiculous experiences that had the lies you know that existed in policy and all this sort of stuff and I wrote about 60 pages you know in, in that period of time and I was going to document it that way and all of a sudden it struck me this is really stupid you know why am I mm-hmm. talking about all this horrendous kickback it made no sense. Uh, I, and so I said, well, forget that. Mm-hmm. So I decided to go back and write a book that was more positive, trying to understand, you know, rather than talk about all the negative stuff coming my way. Right, I mean, it would kind of so, come off as sour grapes. That's or, right, exactly. Know. And I just didn't have any any taste for that whatsoever. I wanted mm-hmm. to write something just asking myself, is there something about this idea that's missing from the from our work in science. And the more I thought about it, and I started out with three, uh, to define three words, nutrition, medicine, and health. I didn't know how I was going to define it, but I knew it wasn't what I was teaching mm-hmm. and had been teaching over the years and, and stuff like this, and our research didn't show that. And the reductionist idea had been mentioned in the China study, so that was there. But then I didn't know how to describe the rest of it, so I found out it's holism and something, something like that. And I started, and I wanted to spell it out I went to three dictionaries to learn, if, you know, I was gonna spell it W-H-O-L-I-S-M. Mm-hmm. It always has been spelled H-O-L-I-S-M. And I thought I'd find an alternative spelling. I couldn't find it. Right. And so then I said, you know, I'm gonna create my own word here, put, it, put the W in front, parentheses <laughs> around it, and call it a holism. And then I got into reading some, if I was a total amateur, you know, in the history of, um, a little bit of religion, if you will, the ancient Greek times and stuff like that, and got some ideas. And as, the more I thought about the concept, I was, holy man, this is, this is pretty good. Mm-hmm. You know, because it really just all of a sudden is like a stepping into a new world, new paradigm. Mm-hmm. Almost taking a step beyond holistic into yeah, the WH holism and the idea of taking this global view of understanding and embracing the idea of the incredible complexity of nutrition, diet, biochemistry, human physiology, and an appreciation, I think, for how difficult it is to draw conclusions from a reductionist approach. Is that fair to say? 
it's very fair to say. In fact, now I'm really kind of immersed in the idea of really uh, challenging the whole concept of what we regard as science. I mean, science is in, biolog- in the biological world, in the medical world, uh, so-called science, it's largely reductionist. You know, of course, we all know that. It's caused a lot of harm, and a lot of difficulties. Uh, and But I understand the need to do reductionist research because that's what I was involved in too in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's sort of the threads of the tapestry. Everybody can work on their own thread, you know, and make a big deal out of it, what the tapestry might look like, but they have no clue. How these threads threads impact each other. Yeah, so it's only, you know, by putting all these threads together do we begin to see something new and something exciting. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of like that metaphor as much as any other. So how do we, you know, how do we move in a new direction with this? I mean, what is the solution? I mean, I, I, I would presume that you still maintain that and a, redu- a reductionist approach is appropriate in certain circumstances for certain purposes. Sure. Um, but how do we, how do we take this newfound idea that you're proposing and implement that into a better way of approaching science? Well, you know, reductionist research. I, I don't want to come back off. You know, as actually be opposed to reductionist research. Mm-hmm. I'm certain I'm not, because those we have to have the threads to make the tapestry. That's fair enough. And I'm glad there are reductionist scientists building my airplanes mm-hmm. that I ride on or building my computers. <laughs> right. You know, they, I want them to be precise. I want them to be just do it the best they possibly can as they put that together. But in biology and medicine, all one needs to do is go look at the cell. You know, the, the, the ten, the, between whatever it is, 10 to 100 trillion cells we have mm-hmm. in the body, just look inside of one of those cells and see this extraordinary complexity which in itself, every cell is just virtually almost like our universe. It's the microcosmos, it's the, the macrocosmos, mm-hmm. if you will, and, and see this enormous uh, integrity that occurs in symphony that occurs within the cell. And that's, for me, in a nutshell, of what this is all really all, all mm-hmm. about. And where, as to where we go with this in the future, I think experiential is a really big thing. People have to simply try it, like we said in the China study. You don't have to believe me. Just try it, mm-hmm. and that that. And so, what is it that they're trying? What is well, it just eating a whole food plant based diet. Right. Okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. Without adding back the oil, the fat, and the sugar mm-hmm. that they've become accustomed to, just eating the whole food plant based diet. It's an awkward term. Mm-hmm. It's not exactly veganism or vegetarianism mm-hmm. because they come up short, you know, in this. But nonetheless, they were going in the right direction, uh, and I. We said we now know, and thanks to my friend Dr. Esselton and Dr. Ornish and some others who Dr. were Dr. Furman, Dr. Greger, Dr. Clapper. Yeah, especially, but it's Esselton really. It's Esselton right. and Ornish, um, and Dr. Clapper. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, there's um, we, but and what I got really enthused about their work, uh, as much as anything else, it confirmed what we have been doing in animals, reversing cancer. Mm-hmm. which is just about the furthest thing one could have in their mind, reverse it by nutritional means. I mean, that re- really kind of sealed the deal for me in many ways, that biologically speaking, we were turning cancer on and off by nutritional means, and we were doing it by multiple mecha- or sort of holistic sort of approach mm-hmm. in that sense, and controlling genes in the process. That's mm-hmm. all those so-called principles that I had worked on years ago 
all of a sudden it come to light and when I when Dr. Esselton called me after the New York Times article and then I found out what he was doing mm-hmm. and Dr. He's McGill covering did the, the, heart, same thing. the heart disease aspect yeah I said geez you, you're doing exactly and he did his thing from his perspective and it was really nice mm-hmm. we came to the same place right yeah you know, it's so. beautifully orchestrated I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. I think I would be remiss if I didn't uh, raise the issue of um, the critiques of the China study, the, the, the sort of um, dismissals that are out there. And, and there's a lot of people that listen to this podcast that are coming from dish different kinds of nutritional protocols and you go online it's very easy to be confused and there's conflicting opinions and it can kind of create a paralysis in terms of what to do and 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 like many things in life something comes out that's new and revolutionary and it takes a while for it to come into the mainstream and then it's celebrated and human nature is to then after five minutes later let's see if we can pull this down and attack it and uh and there are certain contingents out there uh, that that uh, have proposed that the China study has been debunked. It's like become this popular thing. Well, didn't you hear the the China study has been debunked? And and I'm interested in 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 how you weather um, those kind of comments and and what your response to that is. Well, first off, I should point out those people who are writing this kind of information have no training in science, in nutritional science. Mm-hmm. Uh, number one, they no experience to doing the kind of experimentation. They don't publish. They don't. They're not being held accountable for what, their words. They can say anything they want to say. In science, you know, we we develop some evidence, and and uh, if it's going to be worthy of consideration, we publish it. And it's being reviewed by peers. And we don't publish it if it doesn't pass that muster. Mm-hmm. And my work was, was reviewed extensively. First off, in actually competing for funding. Only one of every six applications gets funding. And we just continued to get funding for 27 years for that one project. I had a lot of success in getting funding. And so I had a pretty good name, actually, you know, in the scientific world for doing good science. Then when you mm-hmm. publish, and I have over 300 and some publications that were peer-reviewed, so I'm held accountable for my words, let me tell you, mm-hmm. even by my critics. These people writing this stuff have nothing, none of that. That's, that's, a, that's a very important point to make. Mm-hmm. Good writers, great writers, but they don't have this background. They can say anything they want to say, and they say just totally untruthful things. Mm-hmm. But let's, if we come down, there's a couple of observations that uh, the people who have all these Atkins-like diets, if you will, and mm-hmm. paleo diet and all, all those books, different names, different authors, different times, they're all basically the same thing. 
They're all talking about a low-carb diet. That's become the mantra of the day. Mm-hmm. Well, since plants are the only kind of foods essentially that have carbohydrates, really serious amounts of carbohydrates in them, this is really has been an attack on the recommendation we should be consuming vegetables, fruits, and grains as a means of health from the very beginning. I mean, Atkins came out in 73 with their first book. That was following the McGovern thing that, you know, said to eat, eat less animal foods. Mm-hmm. So the low-carb diet, the better name for that, they should be called a high-protein, high-fat diet. Mm-hmm. And there is no evidence, I find no evidence in scientific literature anyplace else that you can actually take that, that kind of diet and treat and reverse disease. Mm-hmm. It's simply that's the one thing that always brings me back to a whole food plant based diet is that is the only protocol that I'm aware of that actually has had significant success reversing illness. And I don't think any other protocol can make that claim. And suddenly, you know, in recent years, it's become very vogue to talk about grass fed meats and putting butter in your coffee and the supposed cholesterol myth and fat is not your enemy and all of these sorts of things and 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 I'm mystified I'm mystified as to how this could suddenly be the case I mean every cardiologist I've spoken to you know every medical practitioner that I respect does not adhere to these <laughs> to these ideas that are out there and I don't know whether it's there is some science to support something that I'm not understanding or whether people just want to hear good news about their bad habits, but what is your perspective on that? Well, it's always possible since they're not being held accountable for their own sort of uh, interpretations, if you will. They're able to choose rather reductionist kinds of ideas and thread it together to make it sound like a halfway decent story at times. Some of them can. Um, And the good Good Calories, Bad Calories is one such book where the writer is a good science writer, good journalist, but he pulls from the literature, you know, observations of various sundry kinds, pulls it together, makes it sound like a you know, reasonable story. Mm-hmm. So it's used in reduction of science in, in that sort of fashion. But the point is that, as I say, they cannot treat people with disease and get their, they, they can, uh, some of these diets, of course, lead to some loss of body weight. And to me, that's pretty consistent. That's, that's one thing. Um, and to some extent, the blood cholesterol has come down a bit, too. Mm-hmm. But in reality, with the passage of some time, most of them drop off the wagon, don't continue it, uh, from some short-term you know, adverse effects. Mm-hmm. But in the long term, no one can tell me that they can find societies or large groups of people who are consuming a high-protein, high-fat diet for all their lives and seeing lower rates of cancer but Dr. Heart Campbell disease. don't you know about Just, the Inuits the Inuits, the Inuits of always course, seem they, to come up well the Inuits of course are the people who tend to die early for starters mm-hmm. and the major cause of death is trauma so they don't quite live into the period when they might otherwise might get problems but there has been research showing in fact that there are problems uh, not, are not quite so severe as much given how much protein and mm-hmm. fat they presumably consumed um, it's, it's, uh, it's not all, all what it's claimed to be. Well, I suppose that I, they're, they're, they may be a genetic outlier also because they've adapted in a certain environment in an isolation for many years. I mean, there could be, but, it, but it's such a statistically insignificant, I mean, it's such a small group of people to, but there seems to be a, like an inordinate amount of focus on that particular community as well, opposed to the planet at large. Right, well, there's another group 
that's a better illustration, mm-hmm. I think, and this is the Maasai mm-hmm. in Africa who blood, meat, and milk, right? That's their lives. Mm-hmm. It's often said they don't have any problems. Their cholesterol levels are low, and they don't have any heart disease, and so forth and so on. It turns out the principal person who was first reporting this so-called low cholesterol levels, actually in 1973, when he went back and had a chance to examine 50 Maasai's who had died otherwise, he just wrote in his conclusion, all these men had atherosclerosis equal to that of old American men. Mm. So they actually do not, in fact, have the really low cholesterol levels, you know, don't, you know, don't have ad, uh, the effects of atherosclerosis. This is the man who first told, this often gets quoted, George Mann was his name, you know, as telling about the Messiah having these remarkable health advantages. Mm-hmm. But in 73, he published something quite the opposite. So to explain this, in a sense, they actually are able to, apparently, they exercise just inordinate amounts of exercise, obviously, something mm-hmm. like yourself. Right, right. Um, and so the exercise is a, is a big, plays a big role. And they actually are able to form this collateral vascular network around some of these lesions, possibly. Hmm. Uh, and so they're able to survive and extend, you know, and, and do quite well in this for, for some period of time. They don't live very, they don't live again to that age mm-hmm. where we can really get good data on that point. But um, it's the story about the Maasai and those kinds of people, oftentimes you go back and really check to see what evidence is being used. Mm-hmm. It's a sort of a citation of some early literature that you know, somebody made some observations that weren't reliably examined. Right. Certainly it's true with Maasai. And I had the first, the first Maasai student to come to the West to do a doctor. She came to work with me at Cornell. I gave her some money to go back, and her father had been um, um, a doctor, I guess a traditional doctor in the Maasai group. And so I asked her to go and collect some more information you know, to see, because I wanted to know more what they were really eating. And of course, she came back, and they were eating a lot more tubers and roots like that than mm. had previously been reported. Mm. And then I happened to also be uh, friendly, got to know um, one of the Leakey's, the wife of one of mm-hmm. the Leakey's sons, who lived in the, in the midst of that group for 20 years. And when she, I was talking to her about that, and that's where she, she says they say spent 20 years of her life in the Maasai tribal region. Uh, she said that the claim that they only eat meat, milk, and eggs is not true. Interesting. They do eat a lot. I mean, that's very clear. Right, but and, more uh, gathering and agrarian. They do certainly do some gathering. Presumed. Interesting. But that's the limit of my knowledge. I can't tell mm-hmm. too much more about that. Right. All right, well, we got to wrap this up. But uh, I want you to tell us a little bit before we go uh, about this new movie project that's underway. <laughs> um. Yeah, the the uh, Force of Knives has had great success. Mm-hmm. Uh, my oldest son has uh, actually engaged the services of the director mm-hmm. of Force of Knives, Lee Fulkerson, Lee and also one of the co co producers of, of Force of Knives, John Corey, mm-hmm. quite an experienced fellow himself. Right, I know John. Do you know John? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's, I'm very impressed with John yeah. and with Lee, and they both. Uh, are uh, excited about what's happening here. I can't tell too much at this point in time where actually there's a, a one event in particular that's going to set it apart. It's happening right now while we're sitting here talking today. You're such a tease. 
You're teasing us. No, I'm not teasing you. <laughs> I'm not teasing you. I just got an email this morning. I can't wait until You're tonight. You're in a gag order. Because oh, okay. I, I, I can't say. I, all I all I can say is I'm enthusiastic for what this is turning out to be. Mm-hmm. Because Force of Eyes was sort of telling the public here here's some information that's kind of useful and mm-hmm. which you might use in your lives and so forth and so on. It, it, it was. It became very popular, but it didn't really answer the question why. Why hasn't this been, not been told before? This goes to that question, mm-hmm. and it, it goes right to the heart of it. I can't imagine not any been told in the sense of why, why, you know, why has it been so difficult to penetrate the American consciousness with these right. ideas? Yes, yeah, so, right, okay. right, right. I mean, I've become really very interested in the history of this whole field of mm-hmm. nutrition and cancer research, in particular. And often ask myself, why is it taking so long? Right. You know, because we had this information. That's another whole story. We had a lot of this information back in the 1800s. It was brilliant. It was fantastic. For giving us the resources they had, I've got 11 books, in fact, uh, written Mm -hmm. by a gentleman in the middle 1800s who was a doctor until he was 41. He was a surgeon, a doctor, and when he was 41, he got to be age 41, um, he became a vegetarian. And then he wrote a total of 11 books. Hmm. Eventually, he was elected to the Irish Academy of Science. And he, th- these books are incredible. He's, talk- he's warning against going down the road of using pharmaceuticals mm-hmm. in those days. He's suggesting that uh, cancer, for example, is not the disease they thought it was. That is a local disease you could tre- treat very specifically. It was a constitutional disease. Mm-hmm. So he's talking about a whole body. He was talking about holism. Mm-hmm. And he was writing these extraordinarily interesting texts. And but he wasn't able to connect with the he public. He got forgotten. And so the idea is, I mean, I, I, I would presume that this gets into politics and money and all sorts of uh, private interests and things right. like that, that that sort of work together to kind of prevent was, certain kinds of awareness from penetrating it was during the advent of the industrial revolution mm-hmm. it really was and so a lot of things were being invented like the uh, microscope and being refined and other kinds of in- instrumentation to spectral photometric sort of instrumentation to be able to see things and concentrations and so forth and so on radioisotopes came into play in the you know late 1800s and were being used to track you know uh, the course of uh, nutrients and other things through the body and I mean it was some very powerful uh, instrumental methods were coming to the fore and people in science wanted to play with these things and it was, it was fascinating stuff Right. so they ended up looking at individual things, individual nutrients and all the rest mm-hmm. so the birth of reductionism the birth of reductionism I, I've, got a lot, I've, I've written a, a long paper actually almost a book on this whole history and I found some really amazing statements made during the 1800s and early 1900s. And the founder of the Cancer Society, the American Cancer Society, found that in 1913, he had already had a name for himself in the area of tuberculosis. He founded that society and advocated that one of the things this new society should do as far as cancer is concerned, pay some attention to, to nutrition. Mm-hmm. Which was totally off the charts. <laughs> Radical. Yeah, and he, three years later, he's thrown off the board of the organization that he founded. Wow. And in 1922, nine years later, they held the first national conference, international conference actually, 
two of the presenters there were, were tasked with the idea of basically really criticizing this founder. Hmm. Interesting. This this stuff are, has been going on for a long time. Right, right, right. And 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 is, are these ideas that are going to be addressed in the in this documentary, or it's a sort of current context? A not not so much. Version of that. It's, 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 uh, yeah, the current content is more a derivative right. of that uh-huh. kind of thought. Um, yeah, I wish I could tell you more, but. We'll have to wait and see. Right. It's supposed to be out in September. I don't want to say oh, September. Oh, really? That's uh, that's 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 not that that far off. No, it isn't. It's most of it's filmed, and we but still, you know, it's uh, uncertain end. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't want to overstep my bounds, and you know, for that reason either, because the events of I don't I don't see how what's about to transpire today is. I don't think it's it's going to hurt. Mm-hmm hurt the film at all but one never knows the world is an unpredictable place that it is and uh, uh, that is a perfect cliffhanger to uh, <laughs> conclude <laughs> conclude the conversation so we will look forward with uh, bated breath to September do we don't we don't know what the title is yet though it has a title uh, I'm not particularly fond of it but my myself but uh, mm-hmm. others seem to like it for some reason <laughs> it's called plant pure revolution plant pure revolution i think All it's right. a mouthful i'm not sure it sounds a little bit academic to some people it sounds a little bit too provocative i guess i don't know mm-hmm. i was not prepared to say right all right <laughs> i wish i could have a catch if i had howard jacobson with me to come up with a title i'm sure with all his metaphors and things like that i'm sure he could come, come up, up with, with nice, something better he'd come up with something well better. let's call it the working title maybe yeah. that will change by september yeah, whatever right? All right. Well, Dr. Campbell, it was an honor and a, and a privilege to sit down with you. Thank you very much. You are an inspiration. You're a gift to humanity, and I appreciate your work tremendously, and it's been fantastic to be able to spend a little time with you on this cruise. Uh, I really thank you for this opportunity. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic. Your story is also so inspirational. Mm-hmm. It's beyond belief, I have to say, number one. But number two, I just would like to add this little uh, footnote. Um, you know, there was a famous study that was done in the early 1900s by a physiology professor at Yale University uh, on the uh-huh. question concerning the role of a plant-based diet, he didn't call it that, on athletic performance. No, I didn't know that. Amazing results. Published in two books, one in, I think, 1905 and the other 1907, I believe. Uh-huh. His name was Russell Chittenden, C-H-I-T-T-E-N-D-E-N. And he did it on himself first. Right. He started using this kind of diet. It felt better than all the usual. Uh, then he got some other fellow professors to join him to do this, and they felt better too. And then he worked on some uh, young students who were coming into the ROTC program at Yale, hmm. getting trained for the next six months physically and otherwise. So he put them on a plant-based diet, essentially, not the diet they had come from home on. You know, high in animal protein. Right. Stuff. Put him there. He record. He put him through 15 um, strength and endurance tests at the beginning in October of that year. Uh-huh. And came back in April. Same test again. You could see the numbers swoop up. All of them. It was impressive when they went on this diet. He got criticized by his fellow colleagues. Uh, that would work. You know, that's that's crazy. They they improved because they were being trained. Mm-hmm. They had nothing to do with it. He said, fine. So he went out and got some. A couple of all-American athletes, and really, into, as he said, already trained, already trained, right. peak of their peak of their condition, as he called it. Their numbers were near the top, 
you know, they were already at that level. Right. He put them on a plant-based diet and it just jumped way up. Wow. That was published in, at that time. and then Can you still, I would love to read that. Is there a I, way? Yeah, I can get that information for yeah, you. Yeah, I would love to be able to. So you're a living proof of what, you know, he. Right, so he what I'm tried. saying is nothing new. It's been well. I don't want to say that it's, you, it's you've taken over a hundred years ago. You've taken it to a whole new, whole new level. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, and I think that what you have done and some other, you know, obviously world class athletes that I've mm-hmm. come to know too, have just there's some amazing athletes out there uh, doing incredible things, and in no small part due to uh, the, your tireless work. So it's, it's just exciting. beginning. It's just it's beginning. Just beginning. Yeah. yeah I think so. so I agree. Uh, it's exciting times. I'm optimistic, and uh, I think that there's a lot of work ahead for myself and for you, but it's very encouraging uh, to see what's happening and to be, for example, on this boat and to have the experience of connecting with so many uh, people that are having incredibly dramatic uh, changes in their life by adopting this new perspective. And it's touching and um, you know, it's a it's a it's a life work uh, that uh, is fun is fun and um, and meaningful. So thank you. Thank you. All right, everybody, that's our show. I hope you enjoyed it. Again, if you want to check out the offerings of Dr. Campbell, go to richroll.com on the episode page for this episode. There'll be some hyperlinks in the show notes that will take you to all of uh, his amazing work if you want to dig deeper and learn more. Um, I appreciate you guys tuning in. I know you have lots of choices vying for your attention, lots of content out there, and it warms my heart that uh, you would take time out of your busy day to listen to this podcast. It means a lot. And for those of you who want to support the mission, support the podcast, support the Plant Power Revolution, The best way to do that is to tell a friend about the show. That's it. The show's free. It will always be free. If you want to take it the extra step, the best way to do that is to use the Amazon banner ad at richroll.com for your next Amazon purchase. Amazon will not charge you even a penny extra on your purchase, but they kick us some loose commission change and that helps us keep the lights on. It helps me pay my son Tyler to produce this show. By the way, he produces, writes, arranges not just the show, but all the music in the show and uh, everything about it. So give him a shout out in the comments. He's been doing a great job. Uh, So yeah, the Amazon banner ad has really helped keep us afloat. And I appreciate all you guys out there who have been using it. It's fantastic. You can also donate to the show. You can subscribe weekly, monthly, or or pay a one-time amount of your choice if that feels right to you and for those of you who have been doing that thank you so much finally you can leave a review on the itunes page for the show and that helps us out with the itunes rankings and helps the profile of the show get out there uh, a little bit broader so thank you for that um so that's it uh i want to get want to get more plant-based you can take uh, dr campbell's uh course on plant-based nutrition at eCornell, again, a link on the show notes, or you can take my course, which is the ultimate guide to plant-based nutrition. It's on mindbodygreen.com, three and a half hours of streaming online content video and online community forum, lots of downloadable tools and awesome stuff. 
Uh, we're proud of it. We like it. So check that out. And of course, go to richroll.com for all your plant power provisions. We've got cool plant power t-shirts. We just uh, started offering beanies and uh, trucker hats that say plant power revolution on them. So you can wear your affiliation proudly. And we've got some nutritional products up there too. So go check out all that stuff. And you can read my musings at richroll.com on my blog. Follow me on Twitter at richroll, at richroll on Instagram as well. Facebook, all that stuff. You guys know what to do. So that's it. I'm out of here. Thanks, everybody. I will see you next week with Dr. Campbell's comrade in arms, Howard Jacobson. And until then, live wide, live deep. Peace. Plants. Yeah.